Welcome to Retro Fanfic Retrospective, the podcast where we dredge up old fanfiction and expose it to the cold, harsh light of 2022. My name is Amato, he, him, and with me are... Tori, they, them. And Tarin, he, him. Tarin, thanks for joining us today to talk about a fan work. Can I make you comfortable, get you anything, like maybe a glass of water? Uh... I think that's an incredibly valuable resource, and I will take all of it that you can give me, and I'll corner the market <laughs> and uh, roll the galaxy. Okay. I mean, that sounds reasonable. Actually, I'm not going to get you a glass of water, because I'm not prepared to fight Godzilla or the battleship Yamato. So forget it. Offer rescinded. It, it Well, but no, it was, if you get Tarin the glass of water, then Tarin has to do that, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, did you watch Daikon 3? Oh, true. Okay. Right. Well, no, wait, no, Daikon 3 was the one where, yeah, she was given the glass of water that she had to carry it. Oh, so you're, you're, you're saying give... I would give Tarin the glass of water exactly. in order to bring it somewhere else. Exactly. I see. I, oh, I was, but you were, I see. In my mind, Tarin was the radish. Gotcha. Okay. I think, so you, we're two, clear. I think you two have successfully summarized the plot of what we in, imbibed. So let's move on to number four there. Uh, all right. Closing thoughts, actually. No, Okay. Yeah, um, I had the sudden urge for us to talk about a fan work. It's not a fanfic. There's a plot in the first one that would take about two sentences to describe. But, you know, mostly it's more like an indulgence of fan animation than anything else. It is, but like, can I just say something? I What I really loved about the first one is my first long-form comic was in a it was a journey story about a post human world where only dogs well maybe not only dogs would survive but like humans hadn't and the whole journey was that the dog was trying to get some seeds to plant new plants in a desert to revive like plant life on the planet and this reminded me so much of that idea that i couldn't help but have like this sort of like wonderful love for it because it's the whole journey of a little girl trying to carry a glass of water to a radish-shaped spaceship or daikon, which is not actually, well, it's a pun on radish, obviously. Yeah. Okay, so next episode, uh, special episode, What what is a plot? Yeah. <laughs> sound good. Um, sounds a little bit too meta for me. I suppose we should orient people on what we're actually discussing today, because we've been dancing around it. But there's a series of science fiction conventions in Japan. They date back a long ways. They're just called the like Nihon SUF Taikai, so like Japanese science fiction convention. But they also have nicknames based on what city is hosting them in a given year. And they didn't they didn't run every year, or they don't run every year anyway. And when the convention is in Osaka. The convention's called Daikon, which is a different way of... The first part of that Dai is a different way of reading the character O in Osaka, and the Khan is Khan. And so that is, of course, also the name of a type of radish, a Daikon, that's popular in Japan. Um, I think I got off... And so we're talking about radishes. Is that where I was going here? Right. Sure, yeah. Um, Right. Wait, so quick, quick point of contention. Are these official nicknames? Um, I think they are official. They're official nicknames, like they were on the opening animations and such. I think they're on merchandise and that kind of thing. Um, but they're also just called the, you know, the twentieth Japanese science fiction convention. It, they got both names. Gotcha. I think the reason, like, 
you know, I, I think official is actually a good way to put it for nowadays, right? Like, so first of all, the first Diaclon animation we're talking about was 1981. One. Yes. And the second was 1983. But these were both animations done by Hideaki Anno, Hiroyuki Yamaga, and Takami Akai. So these Gainax <laughs> foundational people, like, I mean, if y'all don't know those names, like, y'all should. End of story. But it was when they were still college students. Yeah, it's crazy. So they ended up responsible for producing and opening something to show at the opening ceremony of Daikon 3. And they chose to do animation, which is, of course, very, very difficult. And they produced this fan animation, which is the Daikon 3 opening animation. That's, you know, basically what it's called. And I guess we may as well discuss that as an independent piece of animation before we do anything else, right? But before that, can I ask you to, did either of you two see these animations before I asked you to watch them for this podcast? Well, I was given a great deal of media to consume as a high schooler uh, by my dear friend Amato, and I... <laughs> I had this very odd, in retrospect, I feel like I had an odd reaction of like, what's that crazy friend of mine giving me to watch this time? And I wouldn't necessarily like watch or read all of it. Um, and if it wasn't like top tier of whatever I was watching or reading at the time, I might not have cared. So I have no idea if I've seen this before. I did not have a copy of this accessible back in high school. Gotcha. Only with the rise of YouTube did I get to watch it either. Yeah, I hadn't seen it before, but there was something when I realized this was done by these animators while they were still in college. It made me think of Blue Blazes yeah. or Alejano, um, which is a show that I really liked when it first came out, you know, like 2014 or something. Um, and it's funny because we also watched, um, you know, a little bit of a critical preference on this uh, that referenced that. And then I was like, wait, did they reference? These, the Daikon animations in that show because I can't remember. I would I would think they would have to at least towards of the end course, of it, right? Right. I mean, look, it's a it's a weird like these are really famous in Japan. A long time ago, like back when I was in high school and buying whatever anime was available, I bought a copy of Otaku no Video. Right. It's not very good. It's kind of sort of a fictionalized version of Gainax getting started up. Except it's also not Gainax because at one point they're watching part of the Daikon 4 animation and talking about who, how good the animation is. And like they're sort of also making like a, a version of the, the, the Daikon animation. It's um, I don't remember the details except that I wanted it to be more fun and interesting than it actually was. But the point is like these animations kind of seared their way into Japanese like science fiction and genre fiction fan consciousness. And they get they get mentioned. They get referenced. Um, I, I also linked you two to the opening of the of the Densha Otoko mm. TV show. And that opening is nothing except a tribute to the Daikon 4 animation, stripped of any fan stuff that would give any sort of like problematic, you know, rights licensing issues. True. And it's it's very directly referential to everything. And I think the funniest part is. I guess we should probably just talk about let's talk um, about what the, yeah three, what the animations right. actually look like right. But the I will say you know we're about to talk about this. The funniest thing is that there was a Daikon Four reference in that, which was the reference to the fact that in Daikon Four the main character is older 
you know, grown up and wears a Playboy bunny costume. So in the Densho Otaku, it's Densho Otaku. Otoku. Yeah. Otoku. Okay. Um, opening, the character expands on that theming to have like carrot guns um, because bunnies, carrots, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Over over designed, in my opinion. <laughs> a bit much, but. <laughs> well, a bit much describes a lot of these films. So let's back up. Daikon 3 opening animation. It's a little longer than one would think. How long is it? Like seven minutes? But like some of the, a lot of the animation is reused. Anyway, it's got a story. It's actually got a story, which is gonna, we're gonna run into problems in Daikon 4. But like in Daikon 3, the science patrol from Ultraman, they descend to the ground and a couple of members of it, or you know, what whatever, people dressed as members of the science patrol from Ultraman, give this little girl who watched the spaceship come down a glass of water. And she's carrying this glass of water to a destination, which we don't really learn until later. And she's being, um, being, what's the word, waylaid by various pop culture characters who she then beats up, destroys, evades, whatever, using a, a variety of superpowers and technological gadgets that she seems to have available, despite apparently just being like a, you know, six-year-old kid or whatever. Well... Hypothetically, right? I had a question because there's one point where they scan her body and she clearly has like like in the very like outline that they scan has like curves that she wouldn't expect a child to have. But I guess that's also kind of an anime thing because like that was what Chibi used as well. But. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Um and let's see. To talk about it, let's just finish summarizing the plot, because why not? We may as well. She ends up reaching the destination with a glass of water, which is like a daikon radish, because it's a reference to the name of the con, submerged in the ground, and she pours the water on it, and then it turns into a huge daikon-themed spaceship that she's kind of beamed up onto and gets to captain out into the stars. And that's that's pretty cool. Like, for a piece of fan animation, given this was 81, you were not using computers. You were drawing every cell that you needed to move. Um, given that, it's pre- it's a pretty cool, cute little piece of fan work. And furthermore, they weren't even drawing this on acetate. They were doing it on vinyl sheets and individually punching the holes for alignment. <laughs> I'm like, right. what? I saw that in the little like, yeah. video history thing also. I they was had no budget. Shocked. They had yeah. zero budget. I assume they were also failing their classes while they okay, were working on this because, like, like, my God, just the amount of work. Probably. But, like, acetate is not expensive. So why? It, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I just don't know why they did it this way. But they did it. They just, it feels like they weren't working smart. They were working hard. But they still pulled it off. This mm. was also prescient. Um, in addition to all of the other ways, it's like, super groundbreaking probably i guess i don't really know the history of animation but it looked like pretty good animation for (laughs) what four people three people made in a basement or whatever um it's also prescient because there was a guy like in a covid mask it's like oh yeah well that's well that's just a mask (laughs) right like those are those have been far more in use in japan for a long time like and if you feel sick you wore a mask to you know keep keep other people from getting sick Speaking of which, um, when I went to Japan, I, I got a cold and I was like, where's the where's the cold medicine? There's just these masks everywhere. And I just ignored <laughs> the masks because I was an idiot. But yeah. 
Uh, yeah, that's right. The, the national philosophy would be wear a mask and just deal with it. Come on. Mm. <laughs> but also, you know, the philosophy of wearing a mask to protect other people from getting sick. Probably one we should have adopted a lot earlier here than maybe we wouldn't have had this insane crisis. This, this has been our COVID minute. Uh, moving back to the animation. <laughs> you're right. You're right. Um, so uh, you're right, Taryn. The animation in Daikon 3 is impressive for like, I, you know, three or four college students working in a basement with terrible materials to like pound out something. Um, a lot mm. of the time, you're not really like a goggling at the animation, but you are you know, if you are the sort of nerd that they were, you are definitely smiling at the references that they're making. It's like, oh, hey, it's Mecha from Starship Troopers. And there's like a series of kaiju flying by. It's like, oh, it's King Ghidorah. It's it's that turtle whose name I forget, Gamera. And like, there is, you know, there's Godzilla. Of course, you got to have Godzilla, like all that sorts of things. Yeah, lots of Gundams, too. But yeah, also, you're not just working in a basement, but working on a really strict deadline. I think they only had, what, three months to make this? I Maybe mean, less? It, it was a really short period of time to produce. That is that is super wild. Um, something that jumped out at me, and it made me think of the later Gainax, is that it felt like the animation was pretty pretty bad, like the actual animation mm-hmm except for like the vehicles moving and like some of the explosions and stuff and i'm like ah yeah 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 some of the explosions were pretty good that's sort of like action effect thing yeah exactly (laughs) i would argue this animation is incredible for three people working in a basement on three months on vinyl sheets punching holes why why again look they did the best they could and, and the best they could was actually i think it's pretty good well, look, I mean, it's true. Like, obviously, if you're accounting for that, it's 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 an impressive work and it got them a lot of attention when it came out. It's just that, you know, I I keep wanting to phrase it this way is like, because then when you go to Daikon 4, the animation is not good for a bunch of college students working in a basement. The animation's really good. Like, it's just really good. And that's why, you know, honestly, in my mind, Going through Daikon 3 a little bit is kind of the price of admission to be able to talk about the Daikon 4 opening animation. That's that's kind of how it shakes out in my mind. That's fair. I mean, I think Daikon 4 is incredibly good. But I do want to say one more thing about Daikon 3, which is there's... Well, this is true of both. There's this wonderful intersection of many, many references. Like, there's two types of Gundams, <laughs> you know, from two different Gundam series that appear... I, th- I think maybe not, but you know, up here in Daikon three, there's also Star Wars and Star Trek. You know, there's just things. In fact, you know, I think y'all was saying it before. It's like there's a point at which the animation was spent a lot on blowing up spaceships. <laughs> um, a great yeah. interest of theirs, yes, yes, and so they blew up every type of referential spaceship you could find. And I, I guess there's more things to say about Daikon three. For one thing, as is going to continue in Daikon 4, they took a piece of popular like music that they wanted to set it to. In this case, apparently, it's Runaway by Bill Conti from the soundtrack to For Your Eyes Only, the James Bond movie from 1981. Um, which I guess goes to show you that they did create this on a relatively short time frame. If like the movie came out in 81, the animation was released in 81, they, you know, they went right to it. And- Actually, a lot of these references must have been pretty current, like 
Star Wars, for example, was like, what, two or three years earlier? So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Return of the Jedi hadn't even come out yet. That came out in 83. I don't even really understand how they drew some of these things. I mean, because, as was pointed out, I think, in the history video we were watching, you couldn't hop on the internet and just pull up a reference photo for things. Like, they had to... I mean, I guess they had magazines, foreign magazines. Obviously, some of these they would have had access to, like... Wait, were there VH... S's in 81? What were they watching things on? What I do know is that they didn't have any reference for King Ghidorah, because that was probably the worst drawn three-headed dragon I've ever seen. (laughs) Well, yeah, but, like, you know, if you think if they were drawing these just from memory, that's actually pretty impressive, because, like, you know, yeah, there weren't a lot of tapes of a lot of stuff. There were beta tapes, you know. Um, There might have even been VHS... I don't know. I was born in 1989. I know, it's but, unknowable. We uh, just can't, it's, it's impossible yeah. to look these things up. <laughs> Is it possible there were like art books that they- Sure. Of course. Totally yeah. possible, yeah. Or something. Yeah, I don't know. But it, it took some effort. Um, I, I also appreciate that like, I mean, one of the interesting about these, one of the interesting things about these videos is seeing what the top shelf things to reference were for a bunch of Japanese nerds in the early 80s. And so it's just cool seeing like, oh, the big popular, you know, Western media like Star, like Star Wars and that sort of thing. And, and they they have a Martian fighting machine from War of the Worlds. Like, that's cool. And but then also like what kind of the big name popular Japanese things are. And so like they they cut the girl cuts a, in half an alien Balten, which is the first and most famous kaiju from the Ultraman series. and. You know, they reference like other series that never have gotten quite as much traction in the U.S., like Dai Gene, which is another kaiju series, but like set in it's kind of like a Jedi Geki, like set in historical Japan, that kind of thing from the 60s. Um, and anyway, yeah, I, I think that's really cool seeing, especially Daikon 3 as a time capsule. I say especially Daikon 3 because they could only fit so much into Daikon 3. And so it's interesting yeah. seeing what they prioritized. Yeah, for real. I've always been a little bit confused by um, like those Western influences or interests because I just sort of assume in my head that there will be this massive amount lost in translation. And so I'm always like, I'm always assuming that some random sci-fi story that, that like nobody here cares about would be translated into something that would be more acceptable to Japanese audiences and that's what they would reference. But I think maybe somewhere along the line, I'm I'm just not understanding like how much visual like how visual media like needs needs like big budgets or whatever. You know, I'm pretty sure there's some things that are like some anime and such that are big hits in the West that like were never actually that popular in Japan. But I can't remember any examples off the top of my head. So yeah, one would think it would go the opposite direction also, and that they'd be referencing some sort of like Western sci-fi, where we're like, what's that? But then again, maybe it's just like the cost of bringing things over in the 80s meant that they only brought over the like really big name proven franchises. Yeah, I mean, what I what I do know is that Star Wars was hugely popular in Japan as it was coming out as a franchise. And we've never heard of that here. Basically, it's the dustbin of history in the West. Sorry. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> no. It's just like, yes, Amato, that was my point. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean it's just interesting to think about because like culturally like 
whoa, explosion, you know, I, I mean, maybe it was also really popular in a lot of other countries. I don't know. But I do think there's a connection. I mean, there's a reason that anime started to become so popular for us here in the U.S., even though it was much later, it was this connection of, I, I mean, maybe sci-fi fantasy. Like, maybe there's just some, who knows? I don't know. But then again, I mean, I've been watching a lot of Korean media, and there's a lot of fantasy elements in that. Maybe not as much sci-fi, but. Hmm. Well, anything else about Daikon 3 specifically? I'm just, I'm curious. I don't think we know this, but I'm curious if this girl became like, part of their like pop culture like is this is this character a famous character for any reason other than daikon or do we know i mean she's the daikon girl i as far as i know it could have been the source of bunny girls being a thing at all like um i i know that for i think 30 years after them there was like a a round of merchandising for like daikon maybe 30th anniversary or something where they like redesigned the character and put her on some t-shirts and stuff because that's like practically the only thing that they own except they still don't own the playboy bunny costume but you know like close enough um one of the few things they can actually license well yeah and um i was actually looking this up when i saw because in daikon 4 they they put her in a playboy bunny costume i was looking it up because i i was so familiar with that being a thing in anime i thought wait a second, is this a reference to something other than a Playboy bunny? No, it's not. Yeah, um, it's not. But you see that all the time in anime media nowadays. So, I don't know, maybe that was the influence. Like, maybe that reference created a lot of influence. I, I think Daikon has definitely had an impact. Like, the Denshu... Densha uh, Otoko. Densha Otoko, thank you. Train man, you can just say. It's Train fine. man opening is is really indicative of that. But it's not the only thing. There's a lot of other media that makes very direct reference to these short, simple, not high budget animations, right? Yeah. Okay, another another quick question. Or not question, but comment. But like I always think of 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 the sort of post-apocalyptic or apocalyptic themes in anime as sort of being this this symbol of the 80s. Because I'm not really like an anime historian, but I think of it as sort of an 80s thing. And at the end of this, there's like sort of this this nod to like she's getting everyone on the spaceship to leave Earth or, or something like that. And that Obviously, that storylines continued in four, but like, I'm I'm just always surprised at how much older like the, the themes, like the the what am I looking for? I'm always I always forget this word of it's not a theme, but it's it's like a little a symbol, like a little motifs. Motifs. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm these motifs. <laughs> yeah. Um, Sorry to steal that from you. <laughs> but yeah. No, it's a testament that Taran can describe something that we both understand. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. But uh, I'm, I'm imagining that this these are just some pretty ancient anime themes that I, I just don't really personally care about things before the 80s, generally. I'm wondering <laughs> when how we were you, born, yes. y'all react to that, yeah. I mean, it's not that I don't personally care about it, but I... 
the the scene that you're referring to in Daikon 4, which we'll get to at some point, made me think like, oh, is this an Akira reference? And then I checked the dates and I was like, oh, wait, Akira came out five years after this. So no, it's not. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess, yeah, but I would almost say it's it's Jungian in nature. I know I've mentioned Jungian things in one of our last recordings, but it, it is so this universal consciousness that is bringing out these ideas and tropes and motifs, sorry, and themes. Um, I, I believe it. Okay, so Daikon 4. Um, at this point, they had, like, more budget, more interest, and apparently they got a few professional animators to help them out, too. And presumably they were not punching holes in their own paper to animate or whatever they did that first time. Yeah. I don't even know what they did the first time. <laughs> what they decided to do was redo Daikon 3 a little bit. Yeah, that's the first thing they do. They do a summary because there was no way anyone could have seen Daikon 3 since it was aired two years ago at the previous Daikon. Like, there just right. wasn't an option. Unless you maybe like were friends with them and you could like screen it or something. Or went to and their so, store and bought their their tapes. No, that was later. Oh. That yeah, that that was for Daikon four. Well, actually, they did the right? three and four animations. Yeah. Mm. But but like in between, it's not like anyone could have seen it again. And right. so they start off Daikon four with a summary of Daikon three. They reanimated like the main points. It looks good. It's pretty short. Um, the only distracting thing is that she cuts the alien, they show her cutting the alien Bolton in half, but not the alien Bolton splitting in half. And that bothers me. But other than that, like, I feel like you may as well just watch that rather than the original Daikon 3. It, if is, you... it is far better in animation <laughs> quality. It is, but I, I think that Daikon 3 is kind of like a lovely preface. And like I mentioned, I really like the theming of the girl her job is just to carry a glass of water to the radish that sprouts into a ship. I well, think that's kind of like lovely, simple, very nice. Well, but they yes, retained that in the reanimated short version. They did, but it's a little more complicated. Also, as much has way more references, and like you mentioned, the animation is. I don't know. I want to say incredible. Honestly, well, we were just yeah. I agree, but we were just talking about like the the part at the beginning of Daikon Four where they just reanimate some of Daikon Three. That, mm. That's that's all we were talking about right there. But then Daikon Four, and like everything about it is much more impressive, including kind of like the animating to the music. And this time they do um, prologue and. Twilight from Electric Light Orchestra's album. Yeah. What's the album? Oh, uh, Time. Time, that's yeah. right. I want to say Twilight, and that was not the name of the album. No, it was the all. name of the song that they used. But yeah, they used Prologue, which is just this sort of, um, if y'all haven't heard it, it's just this sort of like roboticized voice stating this. Um, and they even put the quotes on the screen. It's uh, just on the border of your waking mind, there lies another time where darkness and light are one. And as you tread the halls of sanity, you feel so glad to be unable to go beyond. I have a message from another time. And I feel like Daikon 4 doesn't, it doesn't have a plot. Maybe you can reach and try to find something later on. But it does have kind of a, a theme. It has a vibe, right? And that definitely has to do with kind of like entering into these fantasy worlds that everybody is so you know that everyone holds so dear 
through their heart among the attendees of a science fiction convention and kind of just like bl- trying to, you know, blur that line of existing in the real world as opposed to existing in these realms of fantasy. And so I feel like the prologue, the lyrics of prologue into Twilight are very good for what they were trying to accomplish there. Yeah. It, it's a big mood. As they say. <laughs> as the kids say. Yeah. Yeah, they do that, the prologue, and they show the radish spaceship flying past. And like at the start of, of Twilight, they show you the new character design for this girl. And it's, it's basically static shots mostly. And she's, um, uh, sexually mature and in a Playboy Bunny costume, which is less creepy than it sounds when I say that. Not by much, just that Gainax has not yet become Gainax. It's like at one point they're going to do the very first historic Gainax bounce, but it's not it's not that overdone compared to later Gainax. Like, relatively speaking, is all I'm trying to say. Yeah. And Trigger. At the time, it was probably pretty common for female characters to jump around in playboy bunny outfits you know oh yeah happened all the time but that was a reoccurring motif in japanese culture i'm pretty sure i say this as an east asian studies major also (laughs) also, i'm lying um but then like i said they introduce you to the character and then the lyrics kick in on twilight and as soon as you get to the visions dancing in my mind the animation is just insane like suddenly especially when you're coming from Daikon 3 I don't know if you two watch this in order but like before it was like ooh there's some stuff happening and here it's like this frenetic motion being animated of this character fighting through waves of pop culture yeah characters um it's and it's really it's almost jarring that you're suddenly going from prologue where it's like ba 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 and it's like, oh, and here's some music starting. And then it's like, bam, it just punches you. The animation well, literally punches you in the face. It does. And like, furthermore, like I mentioned with Prologue, all they did was sort of like a Star Wars-esque, like put the lyrics of Prologue or the talking of whatever on screen and right. have them read out. And then all of a sudden the animation just, yeah, it yeah hits you in the face. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. You. You hardly get your bearings before the main, like uh, the biggest Star Wars reference in this happens. Like two several scenes happening, just like what, what, what? Like she's running past things, like oh, there's a whole bunch of Toho kaiju or something. And then I feel like the first time I can actually like think about what's going on, she's battling Darth Vader in a lightsaber duel. Except it's also like samurai themed because there's like lightsabers sitting beside them, like in Seiza or something, like Japanese retainers. I just I just want to ground this because there's a lot that she does, but I think that like just like the, the awesome animation we're talking about, I think it lasts maybe 10 seconds before we go back into these like montages of like slowly panning like bunches of random sci-fi characters. And then I'll jump back into like her doing something crazy, but then... Yeah. For anyone who's aware of Gainax's reputation, it's like all the animation budget <laughs> is like just on her concentrated, kid, which is awesome. But then the rest of it is like surprisingly like, oh, let's pan across the screen and just have a bunch of characters. That is true. But also the pans are much better and more interesting than they were in Daikon 3. So you're right that like clearly they couldn't keep this up the whole time, but also it's just more engaging than it ever was in their first animation. But also it's like 
it's just so impossible to describe what's happening. So we should probably limit ourselves to doing it. But whereas in like Daikon 3, it might be like the Enterprise and, you know, uh, space battleship Yamato show up and they do these things. The description of what's happening in a given action shot in Daikon 4 reads like this. And I'm, I'm reading off the Wikipedia article. Nice. From atop a cliff, a xenomorph with artificial legs, a reference to Dai Sentai Goggle 5's monsters when grown giant, wielding the Discovery 1, knocks the girl down with an energy burst. Like, that's a single sentence. That's a thing that happens in a single shot of yeah, this animation. About and a like, second. You're not going to catch these things. It's like just the fact that the xenomorph is acting in no xenomorph way. It's like prancing back and forth like some sort of war chant. Just that is enough to boggle the mind, much less the fact that it's wielding a tiny Discovery 1 from 2001, the Space Odyssey, or maybe a giant one, maybe it's a giant, I don't know. Who knows? Much less the fact that its legs are a reference to a specific Sentai show. It's like, that's what we're dealing with in this animation. I mean, that's true. And it's hard to parse. Like, I feel like I, I watched this, like, several times, and, like, now that we can do that, watch it several times and right. pause it over and over, I could start to parse, you know, what are the references that are happening. Even then, I didn't get all of them. But you have to imagine, this wasn't watched that way. Yeah, you, you have just... to imagine, like, yeah, the, the, the audience of this convention in 1983 sitting here, and they would have the same, like, knocked socks off experience when the music kicks in that we would, but they would just be going like, what the hell? And they'd be comparing notes afterwards, being like, did you see that thing? And other people would be like, no, I did not see that thing. Did you see this thing? And the first person would be like, no, I didn't catch that part. Okay, so so I I decided to try to, to like, go frame by frame and, like, see which characters I could. And if the beginning it was okay i was like oh lord of the rings conan narnia mm -hmm. that's random sure. that's cool well it, 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 in the in the western fantasy shot that you're talking about where it's like panning across i caught those too but there's some things i didn't and i've just got to say i'm impressed with like what was available in japan and known to these people in 81 because it's like oh there's an Anne mccaffrey reference in there apparently like they got dragon riders of pern right. like if a Western project equivalently had gotten past Conan and Lord of the Rings into Pern, I would have been impressed. Much less a Japanese project in, oh, it's not 81, 83 in this case. Yeah. And there gets, yeah, there gets a point to be a point where I completely overwhelmed. I can't possibly pause it like fast enough because I don't actually have each frame. But here's my question for you Do you think that they understood that their audience? And would like virally like care about what they were seeing so much that even though they had no real way of like obtaining the footage or whatever that they would like that it would become sort of this cult phenomenon or or do you think it was intentional or do you think it was Gainax just being like let's just make something awesome and then fit as much as we can in there? My theory is, and I haven't read interviews about this. But that they had already been getting a little bit of attention in like the animation community just from Daikon 3. And so I would assume that this was more of a proof of concept of like, hey, see what we can do. We yeah. can make awesome animation. And it did give them even more attention and it propelled them into like being able to make deals with like producers and stuff. I think I think that's like how they ended up doing their first kinds of shows is off the backs of this. And so if it was, I, I mean... 
if it was aimed at least partially at industry people there rather than at like the the random fans there, then I think it was probably effort well spent. My curiosity is, you know, you mentioned that like, yeah, Pern shows up, Anne McCaffrey, like what? And these are books written in English. So, and that's even just, that's just one. Presumably they were translated, right? I, mean, I guess I don't know. so. My point is, is that the sheer amount of references, again, this is three people and this is not Gainax yet. Well, the, 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 the Daikon 4 was not three people. They got, oh, that's help right. That's that. right. That's right. I, I remember Apologies. like in the history video, um, them mentioning them, they got like help from a couple of professional animators at least. And I think they probably had more people lining up. They did. But I guess my thought process on it, and maybe I'm wrong about this, was that well, the vision came from, you know, a source of people. But maybe you're right. Maybe there was more of an influx of ideas. I just wonder, you know, how these references came about to these people like how were they exposed to this media how did they have so many references it, not that we all don't have that to pull out of our back pocket but it was way beyond things in japan it was you know into other countries as well i just find that fascinating that um yeah they had so many references i suppose i imagine that just like it would be at a convention here, like just knowing about stuff within the genre as like, or the meta genre or whatever I want to call it, like gives you clout. Like you're a, you're a more knowledgeable fan or, or industry reader or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure some people were like, Hey, I, I've, I got these translations of Anne McCaffrey that like are rare or small press or something. I don't know. Um, it, it was noted in the background video we watched. And I also noticed when I was watching it, though, that their superhero comics knowledge, their Western superhero comics knowledge is very basic. They have like in the panning shot of Western superheroes, they've got DC's big three, Captain America, Spider-Man. This was 83. Oh, yeah. They don't have Wolverine oh, yeah. in there. Well, and they also just had a panning shot. They didn't, like, do anything else. Well, they had a panning like, shot for Western fantasy also. And it's like, they, you know, yeah, Aslan's there and all that yeah. kind of stuff. I mean, for me, it's also just really jarring to see a xenomorph, like, <laughs> in, like, boots and, like, using a staff for some reason. Like, you mentioned what these things were, but, like... That's completely contrary to every, like, reaction I have to a xenomorph. Like, maybe if, that's cool. I don't know. Like, no, I know. If I was told, like, oh, we want to put a xenomorph in this animation. Okay. What do we have it do? I would never reach what they reached. Yeah. <laughs> and and there, there's this playfulness throughout the whole thing. Like, they have these kind of mostly still shots of various things. They have Yoda show up at one point. Is he sitting there being Yoda? No, he's performing Rakugo with an audience under the name Yuida. Like, why? <laughs> because, mm. they. I mean, that's what I really like about the fanficiness of this. It's not even just a fandom work in terms of like, look at all these references. They're combining and twisting a lot of these source materials, even for very brief periods, in weird and unexpected and in some way, in some points, like really charming ways. Yeah, like I would definitely be interested in Yoda, like set in like late nineteenth century Japan. Like that sounds that sounds <laughs> great, but like it's a throwaway drawing that they use <laughs> as part of this extended animation, right? Yeah, 
so yeah, it's super fun. But there is a point near the end of this of this of Daikon Four where it's there's an incredibly overwhelming number of characters. There's yes. just like the screen is yeah. full of like fifty or more characters at a time, and it keeps sh- sh- like shifting over to show you. So at the point you see like hundreds and hundreds of characters, which I didn't <laughs> recognize any of them except for Superman. Oh, but I recognized the robot from Metropolis. And mm. having recognized her, I was like, I feel accomplished. I am done. I recognized a character in this scene. Nice. I, I think I also recognized Invisible Man. So I was like, two for <laughs> 300 or something. You know, that specific shot that like towards the end, panning over the crowd of genre fiction characters. Um, it gave me sudden flashbacks to Ursa Yatsura 2, Beautiful Dreamer. And I feel like part of it is because Lum is literally flying over the crowd. And part of it is because just the, the weird angle that they take at it, the sort of panning, it's not left to right panning. It's like they've got an arc that they're going over these characters with. Yeah. And it just made me think of kind of like the joyousness of the animation in a few similar shots in Beautiful Dreamer, where it, it feels like the animators are being like, animation's so cool. Let's We're going to do something really cool just with like the way we're following this thing in space and like using the camera that we have to create by ourselves drawing by drawing. And that's crazy. How does anyone an- ever animate anything? Furthermore, it's just... Um... It's so pre-Gydex, pre-Trigger, pre... You know, you think about, like, how rapid the animation is in, like, Furikuri, for example, mm-hmm. right? Like, when... I think that's the reason that became so popular, just everyone saw it and went, like, oh, my God, like, what is this? It's so frenetic. Like, mm-hmm. the energy is insane. Um, And you can think of a lot of, you know, other, like, Annex and Trigger things that, like, represent that. You know, Gren Logan actually even has something similar. Um. Again, there's a bunch of examples. Though, come to think of it, Evangelion is their most famous thing, and it's practically never frenetic, not like those. No, no, I was going to say, that's why I kind of like... But that's more Anna, right? About, like, Anna yeah. was the guy in charge there. We can talk about how Ava's different, for sure. But, like, this frenetic animation, I think, is very... It 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 is in the Daikon animations, especially in 4. Like, And I think there's this weirdness of, like, thinking about these animators in their early days... They just wanted to pack as many references as they could into it. So maybe that frenetic, ener- frenetic energy, I'm talking too fast because I'm too frenetic. <laughs> uh, maybe that just comes from wanting to do that. I don't even know. Or maybe that was just their vision to begin with. I think it's very interesting to think about how that might be influential to future animations, right? But speaking of that, Tori, and about like the kind of joy joyousness of the animation that I was talking about, One of the more interesting things is that in the latter half of the animation, they abandon references for a while. And that's, and it's just for this one sequence where the world explodes and plates shift and it seems like maybe like life is destroyed or something. But then the spaceship fires a beam of energy that like falls across the surface of the earth and causes life to spring up in really coolly animated ways. Like when the trees pop up, it's it's kind of like the scene from um from My Neighbor Totoro with like the tree going like whoop and like it's it's a it's really nifty just the way they they pop up. 
And I thought that was a really interesting choice. After that, it jumps back into the references. And like, you know, after that is the big crowd of characters seen that we're talking about. But that felt more like animation fans and less like science fiction fans for that segment. Yeah, and that makes me wonder more about that character and if they were like, had any plans to make her into some some like um some star of some series that they were working on i'm like there's a lot they're obviously like have big ideas which they'll eventually put into other stuff and they've animated this character to be a super badass so it's it's in retrospect it's sort of shocking to me that that as far as we know she wasn't otherwise used but um, I cool. request now a fan animation altered ending to Evangelion, where post third impact, post instrumentality, the Daikon spaceship descends down to the Earth and fires a beam, and it's like, "Foo!" Hell yeah! All right, ap- approved. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that could be the subtext somewhere? <laughs> Never mind. I don't think so. They're very different looking apocalypses. I'm afraid they don't really have anything in common. Yeah, because this this animation it sort of ends with the yeah, the the Earth. Actually, I wasn't sure if I completely understood that the Earth gets frozen over because Maybe? of this big battle, right? And then terraformed and recreated, right? Something like that, yeah, yeah. But like, it does seem to sort of be uh, main character Playboy Bunny Girl's fault that it gets frozen. That's not clear because there's no there's no reason given for the mm. ex the big explosion. Like it could have, it could have right. just been nuclear war or something. Like, but it sort of seemed like it was because she battled. I don't know. It's not clear, right? But it's because she was battling with all of these giant entities. It isn't, you it know, isn't right? clear, and it's like less clear because at one point, oh yeah, she rides the sword. She, she rides Stormbringer. She sky. rides the Stormbringer, Stormbringer from Elric. From Elric. it's really that's a really cool scene, by the way. <laughs> and then it splits into a bunch of different swords with rainbow like smoke trail, like and then, yes, and, and it's then, and it's that kind of like crazy missile animation that gi- that Japanese sci-fi like Mac- Macross type missile animation people liked that they're doing like following the swords. It's so weird. And then right after that, nukes go off for no reason. We're not quite sure. I mean. Yeah, maybe. Um, maybe it's the fault of all these people trying to fight her. You know, maybe they're just trying to take her out. Yeah, because, like, what is her goal? Like, in goal? the first... This is what I like about the first animation, is the goal is clear. There's you a- deliver the water to the radish and create a spaceship, right. right? The second animation, I'm like, is the goal just to have as many cameos as possible? Because... I mean, if the goal is to beat up Dar- beat Darth Vader in a lightsaber duel, she got that accomplished within the first, like... You know, ten seconds. Of that action. would be one of many goals, though, right? Because it keeps going. <laughs> I don't sh- know. The shot of her lightsaber, like creating Kung-fu. the after after images, was like so cool to me. I was like, it just made me think of how underused Star Wars imagery is, like how bad they are at actually promoting their own cool ass shit. Anyway, sorry. That lightsaber duel also just made me think it's like, ah, this is old school Star Wars. That's an old school Star Wars lightsaber duel where they go strike, strike, strike. Like, and they convey that even in the like really kind of sped up fast animation that they're doing. Yeah, um, for sure. And I mean, that's why that's why they leaned into the samurai influence, right? Because it's that kind of like Chanbara sword duel. Mm, love it. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm not going to lie, I mean, the sword 
surfing is one of my favorite things. Um, it's like, it's because she kind of, I don't remember how exactly it goes. Like she pulls out the sword or the, the sword, sword comes, comes flying down to her, flying down to sky. her. Right. You just don't expect her. You expect her to wield the sword. And she does for a minute. Or does not, she? No, she just, not she just jumps on it. She never actually uses oh, maybe Stormbringer, she doesn't. which is a good plan. Please don't use Stormbringer. That's a bad idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just you, like it. At least for me, I didn't expect her to just jump on it, surf on it, because it's a sword. I mean, you know, why are you surfing uh, on a sword? Explain, explain. I don't, I don't follow your reasoning. <laughs> <laughs> well, swords traditionally, Amato, are used as weapons in hand-to-hand combat. You usually hold them in your hands and use them for slashing. Oh, like a skateboard. No. Oh, okay. The opposite of that. Got it. You, I'm not... you usually stab with them. You don't usually put your feet on them. Like like a snowboard? <laughs> I, yeah. I'm not sure Daikon uh, Bunny Girl is actually trying to fight at any point anyway. She seems really like happy and happy-go-lucky. So I, she might just be like thinking this is all some elaborate play or something. Which it is, <laughs> I suppose. In the planning stages, by the way, you know, I, I ran the Ava game super multi-crossover thing going on. I reached the planning stages for a new, like, rebuild of Ava game that would, you know, wipe the slate clean and start over. And this character was going to be an NPC in the background of that setting. <laughs> like, you know, nice. the sort of, like, badass high-level NPC who's doing far more important things than you until later in the campaign. Like, that kind of thing. In a big, radish spaceship. Yeah, and you, you, you try to earn her grudging respect. Yeah. Right, right. Anyway. Because, uh, yeah, apparently Playboy Bunny Girl is the god of this universe. Oh, she's, well, she's clearly, like, the protagonist of the entire universe, yes. I mean, she's also, like, super powerful, because she right. defeats, like, not just, like, every entity that she encounters but like also like star destroyers at the enterprise like she just she probably defeats nuclear warfare yeah. right she Godzilla, probably defeats death like, itself yeah exactly um anyway I, i've got to say if we're talking about individual moments in daikon 4 the other like fanficy part that brings me great joy is i think in the second to last it's either real or it's a dream segment which you know are like the little shots it's just various shots of toy spaceships literally smashing into each other. Like, it's the most, like, toy box. We, like, these are the things that we are playing around with, like, kind of just manifested in animation. It's like, I'm just going to smash this thing against this other thing. Here's, a, like, a, a chibi Mothra, and it just, like, jumps on this, I don't know, aircraft carrier and breaks it. I, I think that's what's going on. I, think- I didn't pause it. I think you've changed my mind because I was like, this is so random. Why is this happening? Is this supposed to represent some sort of global war or something? Um, but yeah, the, the idea that these were just two vehicles or whatever smashing into each other is literally just, oh, let's have fun doing what we could do with miniatures that everybody loves. You know, that, that's, right. that's cool. So, I mean, that's where I stand on Daikon 4, really. It's like, I can't really speak about it objectively. Because it's so joyous. And even, what is this, 30 years later? like 40. 40? Oh, God. The things that mm. are, a lot of the things that it's referencing are have still has so much currency in fandom that, like, you can't help but be excited watching it. Like, even if you miss 
you know, 60% of the things that they're referencing. And you probably don't. You probably, as a, like, total nerd, you probably recognize maybe more than that, at least more than 60% of the things that your eye is capable of noticing upon a single watch of it, because you just can't notice all the things. Um, anyway, even if you miss a whole lot of it, there's still enough there that you're like, oh man, Xenomorph, or like, I don't know what Sentai that's from, but it's definitely some kind of Sentai robot. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. And she just picked it up and threw it into a cliff. Like, and so it's hard for me to watch it and not just feel very, very excited by fandom and the ability of fans to make fan works and just crash toys into each other. Yeah. Oh, crash, um, uh, I like the way you put that crash toys into each other because, like, it is. It's like um, we talked about with Stefan Gagne about like writing fan fiction about your toys. It's like, right. yeah, this is the same thing. It's like all the references that you just it's so delightful because it's like childhood. It feels like childhood. So, I- uh, one more thing about Daikon Four is that at the end of what I saw, there was a, a montage of how, like, how they went about animating it. Like, they had a, a video of yeah. like, which I wasn't expecting. Um, and I'm, uh, is that is that what was presented at the con? That's not know? clear to me. I think that was what was added to the, um, the laser disc that they distributed which is how anyone has any copies of this. Um, huh? I have questions about that, though, because all the copies on YouTube, they're not very good quality. They're not very sharp. Mm. And, um, I mean, there's, like, one, like, partially AI remastered one that's, like, slightly sharper, but maybe it gets some things wrong. I don't know. But it's just, like, was what was the Laserdisc as fuzzy as most of the copies on YouTube are? Or is it just, like, no one has access to one of these rare laser discs to, like, rip a better copy? I don't know. To be like, fair, the laser disc is pretty rare. Um, well, yeah. Like, uh, in the, uh, you know, we watched the YouTube video, too, or at least... Yeah, a history video. We'll, we'll link it video. in the show notes. Yeah, uh, which was actually very informative, but at one point, I think, the, the author, the, you know, the person in that, he said, like, that the laser disc was, like, $900 now. It's, it's very rare. So... Yeah, who knows how these copies are being distributed. You would think that at $900, someone out there would put it on YouTube if it was possible. I mean, that's a lot, but it's like YouTube's a pretty big place. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, maybe Laserdisc animation is just not as good quality as I would think that it was. I mean, it's got laser in it, so it sounds pretty good. But I've, I don't no, think I've ever watched um, a Laserdisc, so... No, Laserdisc quality is actually, it's it's really stellar. It's just that, like, you know, a lot of people couldn't, like, afford laser. Sort of like beta. It's sort of mm-hmm. how beta was phased out. Because even though beta is better quality than VHS, it was just, like, not right time replaced. Laserdisc is, well, very similar. It's, like, it's good quality. It's just people didn't want to deal with the giant, their record-sized CDs, basically. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um. Oh, but... Yeah, so that that like how, m- making of sequence or whatever the mm-hmm. the animation um if that was from the laser disc i'm like i'm still i'm always impressed by sort of the love put into it because it has as its background music it has like the last song from the same album <laughs> of the and i'm assuming that's what was on the laser disc or what was at the con yeah. but uh it's just it's cool because it's, it's the ending of the album and they did the first songs from the album too. And it's like, ah, full circle. It's nice. 
this also brings to mind the reason why they have not re-released it, which is rights issues. Like, you know, they got away with this because no one was paying attention and they just assumed nobody would be. But you can easily claim fair use for 99% of what's going on in the animation. But the main character is dressed like a Playboy bunny and they use electric light orchestra music with absolutely no permission at all and throughout the whole thing. So yeah, the, this is... This also is also the, some Kitaro music for the oh, prologue. Yes. Yeah. Anyway. Well, but this is the thing, right? Like, so I think that's why, because they did not have permission to use any <laughs> of these properties, it hasn't been widely distributed. Right. Um... It's also why it's still a fan work, right? It's such a fan work. Uh, yeah, that was it's, the other thing. Is it is right? Like, yeah, because the permissions weren't there. But like, do we feel like it's transformative, or is it just referential? Well, you know what? It's like there's a few questions here about like whether this is fan fiction or like to what extent is this transformative work. I would say, like in the past, when we've watched a video like Troops right? It's a Star Wars fan movie. And I'm like, look, this is fan fiction because look, before they filmed it, someone had to write this down in script format. And it's just a fan fiction. It's a fan fiction they then filmed, but like there's plenty of fanfics that are script format that like they never film. It's still fanfic, right? And on a on a definition like that, I feel like maybe I can't necessarily call these fan fiction. I mean, Daikon 3 kind of has a plot, it, but but the plot doesn't like it doesn't matter that these things are are references like it could be like someone comes down from space gives it the water it doesn't have to be this the science patrol it nothing it, it doesn't matter in the slightest that it's a science patrol except for the visual acknowledgement of the reference right some things some people try to stop her but it doesn't matter that it's godzilla except that that's a reference that they're making right so like the the way they're engaging with the material is in some ways not making fiction out of a source material. And even in Daikon 4, it's like uh, even more references, but like there's even less story, right? But when you said transformative work, I was just thinking about the use of ELO because the animation is so well matched to the music that it becomes basically an unauthorized ELO music video that is transformative to the music, if nothing else. Is that a weird argument for me to make? I think it's um, inspired. <laughs> I think it's interesting. But are you saying that this is a piece of ELO? ELO fan fiction? Fan fiction? I yeah, think I might that... have just talked myself into having to argue that it's a piece of ELO mm, fan fiction. I... Or at least an ELO, an ELO fan work, at the very least. Uh, well, look, it could be that, like, in the same sense of, like, song fic. I wouldn't say this is really anything to do with ELO. Uses ELO. I mean, I don't know, unless you're saying that, like, the theming it's of... It's an ELO fan music video, is the argument I'm making. Like, like in the way that artists make music videos to their songs, they made a fan music video to ELO Well, yeah, I, I mean, obviously, there's always been... Well, not always, but AMVs are a thing, and they are fan works, but yeah. they're not fan works because of the music that was used. Yeah, they're not. fan works because of well, the... Fiction that was referenced. Right? Well, I mean, I guess partially, I guess you can be a fan of a band. Oh gosh, <laughs> Playboy Bunny fan fiction, uh, clearly. But you That's... can't just. Well, no, maybe, maybe, maybe. Those are the two through lines: is ELO and Playboy Bunny outfit. 
I think if you're putting a xenomorph in in boots and you're making Yoda, whatever you were saying to me, it looked like maybe a fortune teller or something. Uh, like, storyteller. Those are story. Yeah, storyteller. Those are. I mean, they're like a, a half a second, but those are instances right. of transformation, right? That's true. That is also true. That's a good point. Yeah. And like. What if Stormbringer split into seven rainbow Stormbringers and flew through the air? That is definitely something that Moorcock did not do and did not think to do with the item. Fool. That is a really good... Uh, that's not a bad point, actually. Like, yeah. that's... Yeah. Like, that is transformative. Though, I mean, this is not a conversation we have right now, but y'all just get did get me thinking about, like, AMVs and their role in fanfiction. Oh, let's do some AMVs in the future. Yeah. I feel like doing two video episodes back-to-back would be uncouth for the title of our fanfic, but but oh, let's do it. Let's all bring our favorite AMVs and share them and talk about them. Right, because like I said before, it's like, it's you're a fan of the musicians, and mm-hmm. we we just did RPF with the Beatles and stuff. So like, you're a fan of the music as well as the fan of the you know, anime or video game or whatever. I have a great one that I could totally bring to the table. <laughs> oh, awesome. Hold up there, Romano. Did you just refer to this as your fanfic? I don't think I did. Okay, because you said two videos back to back would be uncouth, given the title of our fanfic. So, oh no! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh! I'm I'm at podcast. I'm just saying the word (laughs) fanfic too many times. But but Tarin, really, given real person fanfiction, isn't life a fanfic though? Yep. Okay, just uh, we we've ironed that out. No. We're all just characters in someone else's fanfic. Okay, uh, I hope not. I just, it's nice to know that someone's a fan of me. What the Lord. are y'all's complaints about the Diagon 3 and 4 opening animations? Um, okay, so I don't love just having references on a screen with no, mm. like, with no attempt to even... Like make a narrative, make a yeah common context, um, and so I didn't just like ran like random, yeah, images of like Frodo or whatever. It's like okay, I mean, fine, I I I understand exactly why this would be an incredible at a convention, but I'm not at a convention, so apparently I can't put myself in that space when I'm watching this. Um, uh, but she is surfing past those panning shots on a sword. So is is the narrative not that she is traveling through realms of fantasy? Is are we are we saying that in every single one, like every single, because she's meeting every single character? No, she's like, I'm not going to stop and talk to Aslan. Screw that guy. I'm going to keep flying. Yeah, he's he's small, uh, small potatoes, I guess. Um, uh, yeah. Well, I'll just say that the other quibble I have is that um, I don't feel like I had a very different impression of of what happened when um, the bunny lady was sucked up into the spaceship at the end of Daikon Three, and then for for like for them to make that their prologue, and then oh, suddenly she's like older and she's got a bunny outfit and she doesn't. I mean, the spaceship's around somewhere, but it doesn't matter. Um, 
they they gave an explanation. Like they went deeper into like how she became the captain of this ship in this prologue. And I'm just like, why would she? I don't know why I'm caring about Daikon 3's plot, but like, <laughs> why would she? take this glass of water to this very particular little like wilted radish in the middle of nowhere pour it on the radish get sucked up and be surprised that suddenly she's the captain of a space a space radish you know like it just i mean i i guess someone probably told her hey go take this glass of water over there and then you'll They did yes yeah and then she, and, and then she'll just even though she's already like a super powerful person, like she's like, oh wow, I I have to captain this ship. Well, that's weird. Anyway, all right, I I think you might be overthinking this a little because I think you have to think about it. Like, don't get me wrong, I completely understand that, mm-hmm. but you have to think about it in the context of like we wanted to create a short thematic opening. However. What I do agree with is when you look at Daikon 4 and you're saying, oh, now we have narrative consistency. It's like, now that feels less like, you know, theming and archetypes and motif. It feels more like we do have to have narrative consistency. Mm. So I agree with it in in that sense. Um, I I understand. The fact that they abandoned any attempt at narrative, basically, between 3 and 4 is a little weird. Because 3 has a narrative and 4 basically doesn't. Correct. even more specifically, it's the fact that they seem to try to reinforce the narrative at the beginning of Daikon 4, and then they completely abandon it. Like, what was You're the right. Point? They're like, look, you need to be caught up on what happened in Daikon 3. Okay, got it? Now forget it. <laughs> right. And it, yeah, you're, you're right. It's you're like, right. It's that is thing, odd. Yeah, it's this thing where, like, we would have been fine if they were just these cute little self-contained things. If they right? just started like, with... They're just openings for cons. Like, why do we care if there's narrative cohesion? But yeah, they were inconsistent with that, right? If they just started with the ELO music and you had never seen Daikon 3, it'd be like, okay, what's panning across the screen? It's a Daikon spaceship. I get it. That's cute. Okay, here's mm-hmm. a here's a bunny woman. Okay, now she's kicking ass. And you're like in the exact same place that you were without the... Totally. The like... I never thought of it that way, Tarn, but you're completely correct. They really yeah. didn't need to set up any sort of like reminder of the plot there. Now we have insider knowledge that they were planning on having their Daikon 4 be like three times longer than it was. So I imagine they were just like, ah, forget it. But, you know, still, you know, a little, a little quibble. I wonder if maybe there was like a love for the Daikon 3 opening that was like mm. very insular to the community. So they, they felt this pressure to make specific reference Acknowledge to it. Acknowledge it and return yeah. to it. I mean, I'm not going to say it was super successful. I mean, I agree with your criticism. I'm just saying like maybe that was the motivation behind it. That would make sense. Yeah. As for me, like that's... Uh, similarly, I felt like especially in Daikon 4, which was really good, um, there were just so many references and they were so rapid it was hard to keep up and like well i like things like furikuri which have this like i'm gonna use the word frenetic again because i think it's the best word for it this like is really like crazy rapid staccato pacing this was 
too hard to keep up with. Yeah. Like we said before, it's like you just you can't catch everything unless you pause it, which you couldn't do at the time. Right. So, yeah, by the time you get to the I mean, we mentioned the crowd at the end. By the time you get to the crowd you're just, or before, you're just like, forget it. Like, I mean, I'm taking this in, but I'm not even going to try. Yeah. Like, well, I even tried to pause it and I couldn't pause on every frame I wanted to. It was like too fast. It's it's that fast that you're just yeah. like, click, click, click. I can't do it. They yeah. are crazy good at, for, for hand drawing things, for keeping things consistent when they so dramatically change every frame, <laughs> um, in my opinion. But. Oh, yeah. No, that's impressive. But nonetheless, it's like it's like their vision was outside of the scope of what people could actually consume. I think this happens a lot in animation because the animators get to spend, you know, hours and hours, days and days on each frame, but the viewer doesn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they get half a second. Yeah. How about you, Amato? Uh, least favorite? Yeah. Um, I think I needed to see the alien Balton get cut in half during the reanimated version of Daikon 3. And I needed something from Chris Claremont's X-Men in uh, the Amer- in the Japanese superhero segment. Because I have the nerdiest complaints. I I mean, Storm would be ideal, but I would accept Wolverine. Uh, moving that on. That's a very fair. No, that's yeah, a very right. fair complaint. <laughs> moving on. <laughs> um, no. I complaint, so. Oh, right. So, yeah, finally, what's our favorite things about right. Daikon 3 and 4, the animations? Not the conventions, the animations. Uh, for me, just like the fast animation, like mm-hmm. it's so good. Like it's so impressive. It makes me think like, like there's this American cartoon called Super Jail, which is like has so much going on so constantly that you're completely overwhelmed. And despite that experience, I basically want like the 10 to 12 seconds of um, Daikon woman fighting. Like, I want that for like five straight minutes. I just want to be like overwhelmed by this action, like crazy good action, even even 40-year-old crazy good action. Corey definitely agrees with me. No, I think you forget how traumatized we both were when we watched Super Chill. (laughs) That's a lot. But that I mean, that content was also a little bit rougher, but yeah. I, I would assume, hopefully, anyway. But yeah, that's it's just really it's really good. Like it's it's super. It's just all super like cool to watch, um, mm-hmm. and especially for how short it is. It's like you can watch both of these in ten minutes and just get a piece of animation history, which is enjoyable to to see for me i think from us talking and in the context of this podcast certainly i've got to say my favorite thing are the transformative moments where it's not just like you see a thing but it's like you see a thing in a weird varied context and they tend to have the most fun energy um even when i don't actually know what's going on there's a couple of characters in the final shot of the final it's either real or it's a dream segment and they look like maybe they're from some kind of tokusatsu. I don't know. But they're eating rice balls. It's like these two characters right next to each other. They look really happy. They've each got onigiri. They take a big chomp. They look delighted. And like, that is definitely not what they were doing in the source. That's what they wanted to have these characters doing. And like, 
those little things just feel so warm and happy in the fandom space. In addition to like the references we talked about or like the combinations we talked about that we more or less recognized, that it's like you really feel the joy there. And I think that's where that's where the it, it it's like the most fun for me to watch. It reminds me of just a, a big series of sort of omake moments, you know, like. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, totally, totally agree with that. You know, as much as I, as I said, it's really hard to watch without the ability to pause on a certain thing. Nonetheless, like, even if you don't get that ability, there's so many, I mean, maybe that, maybe the reason I wanted to pause so often is I felt like I was missing things all the time, because there's so many wonderful moments of animation. Like, we mentioned the surfing on swords, and, like, the unexpectedness of the sword being, you know, the surfboard, rather than just being wielded as a sword. Um, even those moments in Daikon 3 where it was just blowing up Star Destroyers and the Enterprise, everything gets blown up from her uh, backpack full of missiles. <laughs> it It's unexpected and it's also delightful. And the references, as much as they are just like rapid fire in your face, they're also really fun to see. I mean, that's also the delight of fanfic, right? Is seeing things referenced that you really like. And there's something like special. Because we read specific fanfic and we're like, we well, we know. We know what fanfic we're going into. We know what mm-hmm. characters we're going to see. This was not that. This was not knowing what references we're going to see and getting that special delight of seeing those references. And especially, I think, there was something in the early 80s. I was like, whoa, they knew about that? Like we mentioned Bird and <laughs> you know, stuff like that. But even beyond that, I, I think it is sort of magical to see all of those references come together as a fan right like that's what we like because we are fans yeah it makes me want a lot more of these just quick little surveys of what's on the what's on the surface of fans fandoms minds you know yeah i mean just imagine a new daikon style video that referenced everything from 1983 to present like it'd be amazing i would i would pay so much to the kickstarter to have people hand animate that to this level of animation quality yeah well it's amazing to think about too because that was almost 40 years ago i know oh there's so there was already a wealth of things right there's always huge history to draw from and now we have 40 years more Mm -hmm. that's i know that's wonderful to me Maybe we could curate a list of like uh, AMVs, which try to incorporate as many <laughs> different works as uh, possible. Well, that sounds like work, Tarin. So I'm going to decline. <laughs> I try to avoid that in the context of this podcast as much as possible. Understood. <laughs> uh, speaking of not wanting to work, I think we should close out this episode. We can keep saying like, oh, it's so cool for, you know, longer if we need to, but we can also just take that as a given, I suppose. Yeah, and we're going to put the links in the show notes and they're, it's not long. Like, no. Daikon 2 and 3 together is like 10 minutes, right? 3 and 4, yes. Oh, 3 and 4, sorry. Um, and if you if you just have to watch one, just watch Daikon 4. Forget Daikon 3, it's fine. Um, in fact, I'm going to I'm going to change that. Just watch Daikon 4. Forget Daikon 3. Unless you like 
specifically are interested in, I don't know, Gainax history? I disagree. I like Daikon 3. Okay. Agreed. It's not that it's bad. It's just that, like, you could be watching Daikon 4 a second time during that same amount of time. Okay, but, like, it's a matter of, like, four or five minutes. So you could do all three of those things. You could watch Daikon 3 at the Daikon 4 twice. I su- okay. I suppose that's a fine compromise. Give yourself 15 minutes, right? Speaking of time, our editor points out that it takes 10 minutes to watch and an hour and a half to talk about, at least. Um, that's what we've shown. Okay. So, thank you, Tarin, for coming on to talk about this. I think I'm going to be tapping you again in the future, and you actually have to read a fanfic for it instead of watching a short, fun video. I'm out. But... <laughs> fair. Also fair. Um, we'll be taking applications for new regular guest hosts shortly. I'll put up the application on the show notes. I can't allow that either. <laughs> um... But for now, let's close this out. This was episode 142 of Retro Fanfic Retrospective, the Daikon 3 and 4 opening animations, produced by some college students. I believe Daikon Animation was what they're called. Um, Daikon Studios, what, what was it? Um, in the context of this. Was it Daikon Media or Daikon Film? Daikon Film, that's right. Produced by a group of people called Daikon Film, in yes. the early 1980s for the Daikon 3 and 4 conventions. Unknown college students. You'll never hear of them again. I, look, I haven't heard of Daikon Film producing anything since Daikon 4. Mm. So they must have just vanished. Yeah, I hate to see it. <laughs> Faded into obscurity. You can find these fan videos all over YouTube, and I'm going to have to figure out which ones to link in the show notes, I guess. I mean, I, I tend to like the slightly AI upscaled Daikon 4. I think that's the one I'll link to. And I'll link to the Daikon 3 video separately. Uh, we recommend watching them if you like anything in popular Western or Eastern science fiction or fantasy up to the year 1983. And if you don't, you are listening to the wrong fanfic. Excuse me. <laughs> listening to the wrong podcast. Curse you. the intro song to the podcast is the weekly fair off of the album Popey's Incredible Adventure by Komiku the outro song is Run Against the Universe from the same album neither of them have some bespoke cool fan animation set to them as of yet to my knowledge but you can find both that album and other works by Komiku at loyaltyfreakmusic.com our podcast is edited by noted animation fan Della Rose and you can find our website at retrofanficretrospective.podbean.com or bit.ly slash retrofanfic. If you have questions, comments, thoughts, or AMV suggestions, um, you can contact us on Twitter at Retrofanfic, Facebook at Retrofanfic, or send us an email at retrofanficretrospective at gmail.com. You can also leave comments or reviews on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast service you use to listen to this stuff. I'm Amato. I'm Tori. I'm Taran. We're just three Earth life forms trying to be nice to each other. Until next time, take care. Thanks for reading. <laughs> yeah, we didn't read anything for this. <laughs> no, the, the fans read this fanfic, is the joke he was making, because this is a fanfic, apparently. Oh. I'm just gonna right. hammer that point home. Gotcha. Never mind. I missed the joke. What would this be called? A retro fanfic? 
retro fanfic, retro fanfic, retro fanfic. But, okay, AMB. I've got like a cache of them. Oh, I got a full video. Oh, I actually... Ah, I have been 